through Hebrews. Come on in. Let the dust settle down. Let's get ourselves together. As we begin this morning, just wanted to make note of a sad comment. Uh, Tommy's, Tommy Fecky's mom passed away last night. Was it Tommy last night? So, brother, we've been there, done that. We give to you our feelings of loss. We know how that is. As we begin this morning, I want to reiterate they put this pulpit way back in the back. I don't like being back there. I like being up where y'all are. I want to reiterate the way we are presenting Hebrews. Rather than Today we're going to discuss verses something to something, and here is what is being said, here's what the meaning is, here is how it applied, et cetera, et cetera. You know, more of a lecturing kind of a thing. This time we're hoping to have a balance. A balance doesn't mean 50-50, but it means something on both sides at least. Where we will present the material in a way to give us enough background and information to stimulate us to pursue the Word of God on our own and to present questions and comments and point to references that you can use in pursuing the Word of God as you do it on your own. So it's been a little bit challenging to do it this way, not that it's a challenge to do it more like a classroom setting, but it's a challenge to do it as a classroom setting with this number of people. We had 30 folks in the classes we used to have when I was a classroom teacher. It's easy enough to give the homework, go through it, talk about it, uh, you know, and deal with it like that. So just to remind you again what our purpose is in this study of Hebrews and to not go into great detail in any particular passage but to give us overviews of passages so again this will hopefully facilitate your personal study and understanding of the particular book that we might be studying. Father, thank you so much for your word. Everything we know about you is as you have proclaimed yourself to us by your Spirit through the Word. And Father, in a real spiritual sense, the Word is more important than our very breath. Thank you for this. Father, thank you for moving upon your people. Father, men of old, to bring forth your word, your burden, your purpose, your instruction, your encouragement, your correction, your everything, especially the revelation of who you are in yourself, that you have shared this with us. And now, by the Holy Spirit, are taking the vibrancy and the power, the livingness of your word, and causing that to be transforming our minds, our hearts, our souls, so that we may be living examples, images of our Creator God. Father, do that, we pray, as we study through Hebrews. Father, cause this not just to be a study of what those people went through and the warnings for them, but to know that this word written to believers is as much for us today, even though circumstances may be somewhat different, they are still the same in principle. Cause this word to challenge our hearts, to change our hearts, to transform our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment or two of comment concerning some of the homework from last week, and again, if I have your permission, I'd like to, if possible, if needed, to go over a little bit over 930. Is that all right with everyone? 
Uh, Bill Treby is saying, absolutely, without a doubt, it is. Okay. I think that's what that means when Bill does that. <laughs> any, any, um, anything from the homework that you went through that helped you or you discovered for the first time or you did the homework and then it was instructive for you? Anything at all from anyone? I don't know. Maybe no one did the homework. Hopefully, you've read chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. Hopefully you've, hopefully you've read the assignment. For instance, anyone see any phrases or any repeated phrases yet? Can't hear you. Okay, Lord God, Son, and Father. Yeah, His, 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 His. <clears throat> you know, that pronoun His. Yeah, in the first couple of verses, you're right. Sue Ellen? Angels, yeah, the word angels will be. Uh, say it again. Spoken. Okay. We give, again, we, we give you homework so you can go ahead and get into the next set of material, the next passage. And as you have done that and come to the class, then at least you're generally familiar with what we're speaking about rather than, oh, that's brand new. I've never heard of that. So please, for instance, for next week, and you'll have it at the end of the page, uh, the notes here, read the next section of Scripture, which is 2.5 to 4.13. I think it's 4.13 to 14. I think it's 4.13. Is that right? 4.13, 2.5 to 4.13, which will be the next, if you would, block of material, the way we're taking it, the way we've outlined Hebrews. Again, you can do it differently, which is following this particular pattern. Okay, well, let's look at what we have this morning. Long ago, many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. Long ago, God spoke to us by the prophets in many ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us. And the Greek says, in son. Literally, God's language to us is son. My language to you is English. If we were in Germany, our language would probably be German. We speak in a language. God's literal language to us is Jesus Christ. He speaks to us in son. And so when we read verses 1 and 2, as we commented about last week, what the author has done here, he has set forth the entire theme of the sermon. By the way, I didn't mention this, but this is not so much a letter as it is a sermon or an exhortation. It has elements of a letter in it, you know, say hello to this one, way at to that one toward the end. But it's not greetings, how you doing, my name is so-and-so, peace and grace be unto you, which we see in all the other letters of the New Testament. This is a sermon. Apparently the man has either stood up or has written this to be proclaimed to the churches as a teaching or as a sermon or as an exhortation. So in verses 1 and 2, the author has set forth the theme, the shadows to reality, from shadows to reality, from provisional to permanent. So there's the theme of Hebrews, and as a result of that theme, we would expect that everything he says moves the argument toward the development of that theme toward the point that he will show that the permanent, that which he will declare as permanent, has actually overcome and fulfilled all of the shadows. Now, why is this his theme? Let's remember why. Remember what we said last week. And this is why it's so important when you read one of the letters of the New Testament or you read some of the material in the Old Testament, take time in your study Bible to read the background information, the dates and the author and the audience and the occasion and what's going on because it helps to inform and give us the very overview of what it is that is being said there that is so significant. Why is he saying this? Because he's wanting to protect the church from apostasy apostasy. Now remember what he's doing because if we don't remember that is the theme and the purpose. We are going to begin to confuse the issue of sinning 
with the more major issue of apostasy, the sin of apostasy, rather than personal sins that all of us have to deal with on a daily basis. Because the warnings have to do with the sin of apostasy rather than the daily issues of sinning in our lives. What is apostasy? Deserting Christ himself. A final and full denial of Jesus and his sacrificial death as God's only means of saving. That is apostasy. I will no longer trust, claim, hold to, look to, depend upon, obey Jesus as God's son. I will no longer believe that Jesus' death on the cross forgives me and saves me. I abandon it. I reject it. That's apostasy. For whatever reason, that's the apostasy that the author is dealing with. And that's the issue of the sin that he is dealing with in these five warnings as we travel through Hebrews. How is the author going to achieve his goal? How is he going to do this? He's going to set forth the superiority and all-sufficiency of Christ over against the Old Testament system. Why? Because remember, the Jewish Christians, under the persecution of the Roman emperors, we're being tempted that if we go back to Judaism, the Jews aren't being persecuted these days like the Christians are. We just need to get out of this thing and go back to Judaism. Because let's face it, we're God's people anyway, and it's wonderful to be in Jesus, and it's wonderful to believe in Jesus Christ, whatever. But we believe that we can go back to Judaism, and we're going to still be okay with God. God's going to still trust us. I mean, uh, uh, he's still going to love us. He's still going to, uh, you know, uh, forgive us. We're going to still be able to trust him. It really doesn't matter that much what we believe as long as we believe in God some kind of way. So they're going to go back. And the author's saying, no, no. What you're going back to is condemnation because the system, although it was a good system in its time, has been fulfilled. And if you leave the fulfillment, the light, you go into darkness. This is what's going on in their hearts. So how does he do it? He shows the sufficiency of Christ. In these last days, God has spoken to us by son or in son. Setting forth superiority and sufficiency. So the author achieves his purpose with the use of just one word. Just one word in the beginning. You see, if we're not careful, when we read these passages, whether Hebrews or any of the letters of Paul or Peter or any of the teachings of Jesus or even in the Old Testament, we don't want to read the Bible go through like that, and I did my reading today, and I got my 15 chapters done, and now I can go read Sports Illustrated and watch the football game or go dust or go plant my flowers or go chill out on the front porch. No, we want to read carefully. And so in this word, son, the author has set forth everything that he will say and everything that he will say will be gathered up into this one word. In the word son, we've heard of the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. In this word son is gathered up all the nature and character and purpose of God in his self-revelation through the salvation of his people. This word son is one of the absolutely most significant words in the entire Bible when it applies to the Lord Jesus. In the word son, what do we see when we look at the word son? Because you see, if we're not careful, we go through it very quickly. We go through all the passages and we move along. So let's this morning look at why he began his argument based on God has spoken to us in these last days in Son. Why didn't he just say, he has spoken to us in Jesus? This is the way many of us would have said it. No. No, there's something much more deep about the word Son that God is communicating than we get typically, typically with the name of Jesus. There, it isn't there, but that's our fault. 
we typically have a particular understanding, revelation, that's at one level of Jesus, but the word son, well, you know, Jesus is a son, and we're not seeing what God is communicating. Now, we're not going to be able to go into very much detail this morning because we don't have that time or the scope of this class is for that. Why does he use the word son? We must see what the Hebrews were being encouraged to see. They were being shown a new, unique, and completely radical revelation about God. When the author or the New Testament begins to use the word son, it is bringing forth not a new teaching, but the fulfillment of that which has always been concerning God's character and of his nature. And for the people who were hearing it, it's radical. We don't get that. We are raised with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, we're raised that way. So when we see the word son and hear the word son, okay, fine, son. What's the big deal? But when they hear it, when either the Jew hears it, who is monotheistic, believing in one God, or the pagans hear it, believing in many gods, and they hear this word son and begin to understand what is collected into that word and what is meant by that word. This is radical. This is earth-shaking theology for these folks, and it should also be for us. The sad thing for us is that the familiarity with a word which we have not had very much explanation and study of and understanding of and experience of, and so we don't get the depths of what God is communicating in this word, son. So just a little bit this morning, just a tad to move along. What is so unique and radical? What's the big deal? The presentation of the nature of God and the character of God. In that word, son, God finally brings to man the fullness, as full as man can take in and experience. When I say fullness, I don't mean the absolute fullness of God, which we will never be able to take in for all eternity. But the fullness of the understanding and the revelation and the experience of God that we are able to take in within these fleshly bodies is presented to us and given to us and experienced by us in Son. All that the Old Testament was implying through shadows and through typology and through the relationship between God and his people, all of that was minimally revelatory of God's true nature when it's compared to the bursting forth in great brilliance of light, the coming in of the Son of God who gathers up in himself all that had been said and understood and explained in shadows and bringing it about in the fullness in a way that we can understand and take it in. Well, what is this? What is this? We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week in the sermon, but what is this? I believe, did you just hear what I said? I believe, my personal opinion that the most central and fundamental doctrine of the church is this issue of the Trinity. The word son brings forth the revelation of the Trinity, which we have not had until the incarnation. It is there implicitly, but the son coming on the scene, if you would, causes the doctrine and the understanding of God's real nature to be coming forth explicitly in blazing light. God's nature, the Trinity, in the one being of God, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not only meaning he's the only one, but he is one in his being. But the word one in Deuteronomy 6.4 not only has to do with singularity of being, it is also a collective word, which means a unity. And so even within that one verse, it says that God is one in one essence singularly, and God is a unity in another way within the same person. 
right in the Old Testament, except it's not understood until the Son of God appears on the earth. And then God is saying, this is what I meant there. Now, you don't maybe get excited about this, but for me, this is great. Because it informs everything about my life and about God and about how I am to live and the meaning of everything. If Jesus, I'm sorry, if God were not a triune being, there would be no cross. You see, the cross is not the greatest revelation of God. It is the fullest revelation of the greatest revelation of God, the triune nature. God, one in being and three in persons. The cross is saying something about the most significant issue of God. Therefore, the cross is the greatest revelation of the most fundamental revelation. I am one in being, but three in persons. And each being of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, exists distinctly. Equally, eternally, sufficiently, all within himself individually, but never by himself. The Father is fully God within himself, but not by himself. The Son is fully God in himself, but not by himself. The Holy Spirit is fully God in himself, but not by himself. And you begin to get a little glimpse of why unity is significant. You get a little glimpse of why it is that we as believers should never think that we can do anything on our own because God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, none of the three persons of God ever, may I repeat that word, Mo, ever, may I say it one more time, ever do anything on his own. It is always a collective. One will have more activity involved and more of the leading in a particular activity as the Holy Spirit, for instance, does today. But no person of the Trinity ever acts individually. They act interrelationally. And so when the Bible says, be united and walk together as a group and be connected to one another, why is that so important? Because it is God. You see? It is God. And it causes us to begin to say, oh, well, I shouldn't do this just because it's better, but because it's God. It has the most practical and fundamental issues of our life in its place. It's God. You see, God's character, his loving kindness is the result of his Trinitarian nature. Too much to go into this morning. Stop it, Davidson. Go on. It's just because God is three, therefore he loves. And the love within the persons of the Trinity, the love that God has within himself among the beings, the persons of the Trinity, that love that God has within himself, Father for Son, Son for Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit for Son, Son for Father, but, you know, back and forth and all intermix. That's the love of God that he has placed in our hearts. Therefore, we are to love one another, giving and reciprocating. Why? Because it is God. And if God were not a triune being, this would not be existent. So you see, when the author used the word or the title son, he had, I believe, the whole issue of God's loving kindness and goodness in mind. Remember the loving kindness and goodness that Moses saw and heard from God when he, God passed by Moses having putting him, put him in a rock that he split, a cleft of the rock, the splitting of the rock. You only get to see the nature and character of God in the one who has been split, in the one who has died on our behalf. And even Moses couldn't see some of the essential nature of God except in the understanding of him who will be split on our behalf amazing isn't it and people say the bible doesn't hold together it's just no this is god's book you see in the title son the trinitarian nature of god and his goodness and loving kindness are on full display god declaring that all that he had foreshadowed in the old testament was now being fully manifested and complete 
So knowing the author's reason for son, do we have a better understanding now when the author says, but in these last days God has spoke to us in son? Do you have a better deal handle on that this morning? Let it gather up everything about God in that word. Everything about God is in that word. Knowing this, the reason for son, why and how does it elaborate? Now we begin to see what he's going to do for the rest of Hebrews. The rest of Hebrews is an elaboration and an explanation and an application of what it is that God has done in son. See, Hebrews is very narrow in its scope. Man, this thing is big. Well, sure, it's big in some ways, but it's very narrow in scope. Because what the author is saying, when I say author, I mean the human author and the divine author. What God is saying is everything about your life as a believer has to do essentially and centrally and is based upon and rotates around this one title, Son. Everything. So now you know when Jesus says in John, he who rejects the Son rejects the Father. For how can you have the Father apart from the Son? Because they are not two independent beings. They're both in the being of God. They're inseparable. In order to have one, you have the other. You can't have one without the other. So why does he do this and how does he do it? He sets forth the proofs of the sonship using Scripture and recent history as his proof texts. So let's go through it. God in these last days has spoken to us in Son. What's the next word? It should be a relative pronoun in your text. You know, relative pronoun, who, whose, whom. Is it a relative pronoun? Whom? Okay, it should be a relative pronoun. God has spoken to us in Son. Whom? Whom refers to whom? Son. Remember, the relative pronoun refers to a noun. God has spoken to us in son, whom. Whom refers to, come on, come on, son. Now, I'm not going to start diagramming sentences, which is what I used to do. (laughs) Relative pronoun refers to a noun. The noun that it refers to is son. Why is it whom instead of who? Because son is an object of the preposition, Objective case, who and whom, objective case. Well, no, it should help you to understand what it is that we're talking about. Because if it were who, then it would be talking about somebody else. What does this mean? Oh, keep going, you're right. Now get going on this. (laughs) Bill already knows all these things. And all of a sudden, I want to prove to you by the proof text that this son is who he is, but... Oh, I just, there's so much to say. And he starts in verses 2 for the rest of verse 3, or the rest of verse 2 and into verse 3. He said, oh, there's just so much. He's the heir. And he starts seven titles. Look in verses 2 and 3, and you should see seven titles. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. He's the heir. Through whom he also created the world. He's the creator. Who is? Son. He is a radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, or he is the exact image. I like the word image because this is what we get in Genesis 1.26, the image of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the sustainer of all things. After making purifications of sin, he is the purifier of all sin. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, meaning God's right hand, having become as much superior, well, sat down. He is the finisher. He is the one who has finished all things. Before the author can even get into the scripture, he's saying, let me tell you who this son is. So having set forth that, the superiority to the son, now the son, the author compares him with the angels becoming much more superior to the angels. Why angels? Why angels? Why does he concern himself with the angel? Who are the angels and what are their functions? You see, for instance, in your ESV study Bible, 
you will see, let me turn the page here, on page 2362, at the bottom, verse 14, ministering angels, and it'll give you a little background as to who the angels are and what the Jews understood of angels. But the Jews essentially venerated angels. Now, how many of us know that angels are superior to men as far as knowing God, seeing God, being in the face of God, being with God, power, majesty, and everything else. We know that here we have the pecking order, God, angels, and man. Now, so what the author is going to do is this. He's going to say, I'm going to show you the superiority of the Son, and I'm going to start with the greatest, at least in your mind, the greatest created beings of all, angels. If you were to ask people, what are the greatest created beings? They tell you angels, right? We're all going to become angels when we go to heaven. That's what people say. We're not going to become angels. We won't have wings. <laughs> but that's what they tell their kids. When you die, you're going to become an angel. Why? Because we think that's superior. Well, during a period of time, it is. And so if the sun is greater than an angel, then what else is there? Only God. You see, to the Jew, the angels were supernatural heavenly beings, which they are, created for the purpose of serving, communicating, and sometimes even carrying out the will of God to humanity. But the Jews lifted them up and were awestruck by them, which they should have been, and understood that if anybody is superior, the angels are superior, not to God, but they are the superior creatures except for God. And so the author begins to say, hey, this son, the one we're talking about, is even greater than all the angels. So the angels who are right under God with great ability and significance, you think that's great. This son is superior to them. He immediately throws the issue of the superiority of the Lord Jesus into God himself. So you see that, that some of that information in your study note in this ESV Bible and perhaps other Bibles. Again, why do we mention that? So you can go ahead and look at these and look them up and read them. And when you see these kinds of notes, do the investigation so you get a better handle on what it is that the people are hearing for the first time and what the author's intent and the reason for him saying that. So how does the, angel prove, how does the author prove that Jesus is superior to the angels? How does he do it? He uses what? Scripture. You remember first, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16? All Scripture is what? God-breathed, inspired by God. And it's profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Right? So that we can be equipped, adequate for every good work. All Scripture. So where does he go to prove? He doesn't go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. He doesn't go to Greek mythology. He doesn't inquire of anything of this world system. He does what each one of us is to do when we're dealing with the issues of truth in relation to God. He stays with Scripture, and he doesn't go beyond Scripture as his proof. He may use other references, but the proof and the power is from Scripture. Friends, if we are not being soaked in Scripture, we are allowing ourselves to be open to everything imaginable that the enemy would love to use in our lives to destroy us. Let's be a scripturally soaked people. Let's make sure that before we read our magazines or watch our TV programs or whatever it is, and we're not knocking that, but before we do that, let's make sure that we have spent quality and quantity time in the Scripture. For nothing will get you through the temptations of Satan and the lures of the world and meet the needs of your life, nothing will do it except Scripture. Some people say nothing would do it more than Scripture. 
Nothing would do it except Scripture. He goes to Scripture. This should be instructive for us. He's dealing with the most significant issue of this church. This church apparently is heading toward the shoals of disaster as it sails in this great storm of persecution. And it's out of control apparently and is heading toward the reefs. And something has to be done to stop it from crashing into the reefs and sinking into apostasy. And how does he do it? He takes out the sword of the word and he begins to handle the sword of the word of God as he begins to take care of the issues that are attacking the church for the salvation of the church. He's going to attack and destroy all the outside forces, and then he's going to take the word of God, and he's going to mend the inside weaknesses. How? One way, the word of God. Amen? One way, the word of God. Arthur uses several, and by the way, this is Old Testament word. Now, you see, we thought or think sometimes the gospel starts in the New Testament. Well, if you've ever read Galatians 3, you'll see what Paul says knowing beforehand that God would, you know, save the world, he preached the gospel to Abraham. So the gospel is way back there, even in Genesis chapter 3. That's where the gospel begins. So the author uses several Old Testament scriptures to show how and why the Son is superior to angels. Now, your study Bible will have the references in the margin. It will have a quote like in verse 5. There's a quote. Where does that quote come from? Well, you look in your margin and you'll see it comes from Psalm verse, chapter 2, verse 7. What would be instructive is when you read that, go to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and read it. Now, you'll see some differences because some of the translations are from a Greek translation and some are from a Hebrew translation that the author is using. There's reason for that, but it's way beyond what we need to go into, and I don't know enough about it anyway. If you really want to know the details of that, ask our resident theologian, Evan May, and he'll tell you all about it. Chapter 2, uh, verse 2 again, we have another quote. So let's look at this. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? What is he showing? Andrew, why does he say that? Why does he quote that right away? Why did he quote it? Why did he make that the first quote? Because what is he saying? God has spoken to us these last days, what? In son. He's greater than the angels. Which of the angels did he say, you are my son? You see why he begins where he begins? You are my son. No angel ever heard that word coming out of God's mouth. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, when in history do we hear that word? Where in history do we hear God saying, you are my son? Where do we see it in history? Pass the psalm in, in living history where God speaks audibly into the world to say, you're my son. Where do we see that? At the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, and also in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. You got it. God is proclaiming, you are my son. My son. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Why is this word son so important? Because that's the emphasis and the truth and the centrality of what God is communicating about himself and about his triune nature. And so we go through these particular verses of Scripture. As the author quotes from the Old Testament to say, if you're going to go back to Judaism, you're going back to that which God has proclaimed to you in Christianity. What are you going to do? You're going back to the same thing, except you're denying the very work of Jesus and the very truth that he is a son if you go back. But you're going to find the same truth in the Old Testament as you find in the New Testament. There is not a single truth in the New Testament that is not in the Old Testament. Nothing. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's just new to our understanding. Nothing new. It's the same word. God hasn't changed. 
It become much nicer when Jesus comes. <laughs> He's, it's, not, it's not true. Those are lying statements. So you have in these verses 5 to 13, you have statements in the verse and corroboration in the Old Testament scriptures. What he says, he backs up and proves by Old Testament scripture. So what is the author's burden in using these scriptures? His burden is to show that Jesus is superior. Why? Because he's the divine son of God. He is God the son. One with God the father and God the Holy Spirit. Let's make sure that for us the study of Hebrews elevates our understanding of this Messiah, Jesus. And he's just not our pal and friend and somebody we hang out with. Oh, he is some of that. But more than anything else, he is the God of glory whom Stephen sees in chapter 7 of Acts and he says, behold, I see the, God, the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. When he looked intently into heaven, and on that they stoned him. Let's allow Scripture and experience of the Holy Spirit to elevate our conception and understanding and deepen our experience in this one who is called Son. That's not letting just say Jesus. So when we say Jesus, we have in that word the context of the great Son of God. What's his burden? What is he trying to get at? What is, no, I'm sorry, God never tries. He always accomplishes. Don't like that word. What did I say? He's trying. Don't ever say God is trying anything. He never tries. He does. Mm. What is God accomplishing here? He is saying one thing. The word, the Son is as divine as I am. He is, divi- is as divine as I am. See, verse 14 summarizes the purpose for the angels. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are inheriting salvation? So what is the purpose of the angels? The angels are for a period of time, our ministering ministering spirits to us for a period of time while God is working out the issues of salvation in our lives. Therefore, having given the church this most amazing revelation, the author stops. He said, wait a minute. I need to say something before we go on. I want you to notice when you read the epistles and even the sermons of Jesus, I want you to begin to take note of something. I want you to begin to take note of how many if, if you do this, if you do that, if you do that. I want you to see how many ifs are in the Bible, how many warnings are strewn throughout the preachings of Jesus and the letters of the apostles. Strewn throughout all of these are warnings. Why? Because they are there for our protection and for our encouragement. And they are God's means of keeping us faithful. They're God's means of keeping us faithful. So we should look at these warnings and take them very, very, very seriously, which I'm not sure whether we do that very well. So he gives them a warning. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at it. Look at the warning. Because of what we know from the Word of God, therefore, what does that mean? Because of everything I've said about what? Son. Because of everything I've said about whom? Son, because of everything I've said about son, or more than that, because of everything that is about son, because of who the son is, because of that, because of that, 
we must pay much. Much. Do you hear the word of God saying to you and to me about our own Bible study and adherence and obedience? Much closer attention to what we've heard. He didn't just say, hey, could you do a little better? Could you give me two more minutes a night? He's saying everything depends upon this. Pay much greater attention to me, to what I've done, to the Scripture. Why? Lest we drift from it. From what? From the teaching about the Son. From what the Scriptures say. Oh, well, I, I, I think that my ten minutes a night is enough Scripture for me. Oh, yeah? And when you think that, the halls of Satan roar with laughter of derision. <laughs> we got him. <laughs> because little Scripture allows for much drifting. The more Scripture, and when I say Scripture, I mean within the context normally the Holy Spirit, adhering to it, etc., doing the whole thing. The more Scripture, the less opportunity for drifting and the less potential. Well, so I suppose the potential is always there, but for the less activity of drifting. I can raise my hand first on this, so I will. How many of us have experienced drifting in our lives? And you know what happens? The enemy comes in, and he begins to attack. And one of the first things that begin to happen is we begin to drop off in our study of the Word of God, the very thing that should happen the least. We should run to the Word, run to prayer, run to God. You see, as great as angels are, they are just God's messengers, but the Son is so much more. He is one with God, even He is God Himself. Remember first, I mean, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and the Word was God. Since this warning was given to the Hebrew believers, does it also still apply to us? Does this warning apply to us? You see, we have to be careful. Oh, well, that was for them. No. This letter is written to those in Christ. Are we believers in here? Then the letter that was written to them, even though circumstance may have changed, the principle remains the same. We may not have a Nero on the throne, but we still have a God of this world who was attacking us where 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded and be careful of this thing because he's sneaking about, trying to devour us, roaring like a lion. He's still there. The enemy is still there. His name may not be Nero or whatever, but the enemy is still there. You see, why must we also pay much closer attention? Why? Because we're going to drift. So let's read the warning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Since, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, remember the message, they were messengers of God or the oracles and the things of God, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, how shall we escape if we begin to neglect Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and our fellowship and relationship and obedience and walk with Him? The answer is, we won't escape. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and my gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. He says, don't drift. See, the author warns us about not escaping in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Escape what? Escape what? Is this a real warning for us? Some believers think, well, it's a warning only to lose your gifts, or your status in heaven. It's a warning against apostasy to lose your very salvation. 
Don't be deceived here. This is a warning that has eternal consequences. It's not a warning of just, well, if you're going to, you know, this happens, whatever. It just is according to your gifts and whatever. But certainly, and we say that, or it's said that way, because we believe that those whom God saves will be kept saved. But he will not keep us saved without means. He keeps us saved through faith, and we must be warned from time to time to stay on the path of faith. These are real warnings. This is a warning about not going to hell. Don't fall for those other teachings, which don't like the idea that the security of God needs to be warned about. Well, certainly it does. Why? Because we're sown into weakness. You see, if you're not in touch with the absolute weakness of your own flesh, you're not going to like these warnings. I love warnings. Oh, God, I hate to say it, but I need to be constantly warned by the Holy Spirit. I need God's warnings. For this arrogant old frog would have jumped ship years ago had it not been for God's good hand of warning and mercy and power in my life. I need the warnings. On the last page of your notes, I've given you just some thoughts briefly concerning the issues of the deity of Jesus. I want to take those and look at them. Son, ask God to give you, to give me, to each one of us, a much fuller understanding, experience of what that means. Do your homework for next week. We'll be in chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, I think it is. Thank you so much.